All right, everybody, good morning again. Let's open our Bibles or navigate on our devices to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to look at verses 18 through 22 this morning. Small section with a lot of uh, impact on our lives. Matthew 21, verses 18 through 22. The topic, the disciples marvel that Jesus causes a fruitless fig tree to wither. The title of our message, Jesus is a fig wither friend. Let's have a word of prayer. I'm sorry, it's a, it's a habit. I've tried to break it, but I just, I can't. All right, let's pray. Father, thanks for our morning. What a joy, Lord, to worship you with others, Lord, like-minded and like-hearted who are wanting your coming to be so soon, Lord. Many of us struggling in difficult situations, even those who are having a relatively easy time, Lord, still knowing that to be with you is far better than to be here. While we wait, Lord, we wanna soak up your word so that we can be about the business of the kingdom. And so teach us this morning, we pray. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said amen. Before his 19th birthday, Frank Abagnale successfully performed cons worth millions of dollars by posing as a Pan American World Airways pilot, a Georgia doctor, and a Louisiana parish prosecutor. His life was made famous in the 2002 Steven Spielberg film, Catch Me If You Can, starring Leonardo DiCaprio as Abagnale and Tom Hanks as Carl Hanratty, a bumbling but persistent FBI agent. We have a tendency to revere those who can pull off a con. We even call them artists. Think Paul Newman and Robert Redford in The Sting. They were the handsome heroes making right the wrongs of their mark. If there's one place you never want to fake it, never want to try to con others, it would be in the church. Too much is at stake, not the least of which is the eternal destinies of the folks you come into contact with. We are warned that there will be frauds among God's people. In his book, Jude describes some of them as, and I quote, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Now, these guys are apostates. They're not saved. When Jude says they are twice dead, he means that they never had eternal life in the first place, and they're headed for eternal damnation in the end. They were born dead in trespasses and sins, and they're headed for the second death. Jesus encountered a fig tree that was without fruit. He cursed the tree so that it withered. It was symbolic of the true condition of the leaders of Israel. They were trees without fruit. He then used that occasion to teach his disciples, which would include us, a lesson about fruit and faith. Now, we are not the fig tree. We're not going to be cursed. But there is something to be said about fruit and faith as we walk with the Lord. I'll organize my thoughts then around two points. Number one, Jesus is going to walk with you inspecting for fruit. And number two, Jesus is going to work with you expecting faith. Let's take a look at fruit first in verses 18 and 19. Now the fig is the first fruit mentioned by name in the Bible. I feel sad about that because I hate figs in every possible manner. But that's just me. Anybody like figs? Raise your hand. God bless you. This is my way of letting you know to not make me anything with figs, but what'll happen is someone will think, I'm gonna gonna make something that Pastor Gene would like with figs, and I won't like it. (laughs) 
It has the sad distinction of being the tree from which Adam and Eve took leaves to sew together coverings for their nakedness immediately after they had sinned, plunging God's creation into its current state of ruin. God came to fellowship with Adam and Eve that afternoon as he always did each day. They were hiding, wearing fig leaves. It was the first case of camouflage as they tried to blend in with the fig tree, hiding from God. I wonder if God, you know, is that a fig tree or is that Adam wearing fig leaves? I don't, I don't think it was too successful. Fig trees produce early and late fruit, so I'm told. And one thing that is true of their cycle is that if they have leaves, they will have fruit underneath. And so we begin in verse 18. Now in the morning, as Jesus returned to the city, to Jerusalem, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. If you compare Matthew's account with the one in Mark's gospel, you learn that Jesus came across the fig tree on Monday morning and finding it fruitless, he cursed it. Then on Tuesday morning, the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots. Now, you don't get that impression from Matthew, and therefore, skeptics like to say that it's a discrepancy in the Bible. They want to prove that the Bible has errors so that they don't have to feel its conviction that they are sinners in need of the Savior that is presented on its pages. And so here's the issue. It's eternal life, whether you're going to spend eternity in heaven rejoicing with the Lord or separated from God in the lake of fire, and you're feeling that conviction and, and, and all, and then you say, oh, wait, I don't need to believe any of that because Mark said this happened on Tuesday and Matthew doesn't mention that nanny nanny. And, and seriously, I mean, it, really you're gonna base your entire salvation on an apparent discrepancy in the Bible. Nevertheless, don't people say to you all the time, oh, there's tons of errors in the Bible. The Bible's full of errors and discrepancies. It is not. Now, let's talk about this one just for a minute. Mark is telling the story chronologically when you get to his gospel. Matthew is telling the same story topically. And so they either add or omit certain details. I just did this the other day. One of the gals in our church, we were during VBS in the kitchen. Uh, she remembered some story that I like to tell and someone else had never heard. And she says, tell her, tell her the story. It'll, it'll fit in. And so, so I told the story to the best of my ability. And when I was done, she said, you left out the best part. It's my story. I'll tell it however I want. But then I go, what part was that? Because I couldn't remember. She goes, this part. And I go, oh, yeah, that is the best part. And so now mine has to do with being senior. But uh, sometimes we tell stories differently. The story's the same. We're not lying. It's true. But we tell it from a different angle or a different perspective depending on the audience and the time and those kinds of things. And so that's many times what's happening in the Bible. There are no insurmountable contradictions in God's word. It is trustworthy through and through. Now, Matthew notes that Jesus was hungry. It's been suggested that he was hungry because he had missed breakfast, spending time instead in prayer, talking to his father. That makes sense because Jesus, who often retreated for prayer, sacrificing both sleep and food, would be hungry on his way into town. He always spent time alone with the Father. How much more might he this last week on earth leading up to the cross? 
You might go so far as to say that Jesus' physical hunger was evidence of his spiritual hunger to spend time alone with God. He would be hungry and tired precisely because he felt the need to first satisfy his spiritual hunger to be with the Father to the exclusion of material things like food and physical comforts like sleep. When I was first a Christian, I came across this saying in a devotional I was reading, no Bible, no breakfast. How many of you ever heard that before? No Bible, no breakfast. Now, it can be taken legalistically, you know, where you're, you feel terrible about missing your devotions, but the, the idea is that, is simple. If I don't have time to open God's word for a few minutes and take in spiritual food, how do I have time to wolf down physical food? The spiritual is going to be much more necessary than the physical as I get out into my day. And so it's a good reminder, no Bible, no breakfast. And so finding himself hungry, he was probably, as we used to say to sound like surfers, stoked to come across a fig tree in leaf. Now, the Gospel of Mark also says it wasn't the season for figs, so why would Jesus expect to find any? Well, figs may not have been in season, but a leafy fig tree meant you should nevertheless find fruit underneath its outward growth. And besides, this fig tree wasn't in an orchard. It didn't seem to belong to anybody. It was growing all by itself along the path they were walking. It was an altogether unusual fig tree. It just happened to be there. Uh, sort of at the right time, at the right place, full of leaves. And so Jesus said to it, finding it had no fruit, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. Now this is the only so-called destructive miracle Jesus ever performed. For three and a half years, he had gone around doing only good, healing the sick, delivering the oppressed, raising the dead. Certainly marked a change in his ministry, but not a change in his character. Here's what I mean. When Jesus first came on the scene, when he first began his ministry to the nation of Israel, he went into the synagogue at Nazareth, and this is what happened. This is from the Gospel of Luke. He was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to the, uh, heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he said to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so the Lord, reading from Isaiah, said, I am this person that Isaiah is talking about, and I'm here today offering these things to the, to the nation of Israel. Jesus went about after that doing exactly what Isaiah said the Messiah would do. Now, what is fascinating is that when Jesus read from Isaiah, he stopped reading in the middle of verse 2. Here is how Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 reads. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, Jesus had been for three and a half years proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord. He had been offering to establish the kingdom on earth, inviting Jews to accept him. They would not. 
and this was the final few days on earth before they would see to it he was killed. Thus the day of vengeance of our God was something the nation of Israel must experience. And so this cursing of the fig tree is kind of a, I think the right word would be harbinger, even though I don't know what that means. It was a harbinger of what was coming for the nation of Israel. And just a few short years after his crucifixion, around 70 AD, Titus and the Roman legions would surround and then destroy Jerusalem and its temple. For the next almost 2,000 years, the Jews would be dispelled from their promised land, dispersed over all the earth. They would not be a nation geographically although God would preserve them miraculously to return to their land in 1948. Now the fig tree illustrates Israel, the nation of Israel as it was officially represented by its leaders. Israel's Messiah had come, he had proven himself over and over again, fulfilling all the signs of the Messiah, showing all the credentials that were predicted. He had taught them for three and one half years, showing them the way out of their self-righteousness back to the righteousness that comes by faith in God when you simply believe and are justified by God when you are declared righteous by your faith in Jesus Christ. But for a handful of followers, there were 120 on the day of Pentecost huddled and hiding in an upper room, Jesus was totally rejected. The Jews, represented by their leaders, preferred to attempt to meticulously keep the outward law of Moses while ignoring the more important inward issues of the heart. Thus, they were the leafy fig tree. Outwardly, religious, filled with activity, inwardly fruitless. They gave the impression by their much religious activity they were bearing fruit, but underneath they were fruitless. Another time, Jesus made this same point using a different illustration. Passing by a grave, he said that the self-righteous leaders of the nation were like that grave. Outwardly, well-kept. Inwardly, he said, full of dead man's bones. We have some beautiful cemeteries in this area. Uh, I've done funerals at probably all of them. I, I don't know why, but Grangeville Cemetery is my favorite. It's just the way it's laid out. It's really Perfect, but after you read this, I can't ever go by a cemetery without thinking of Jesus saying this. Outwardly, beautiful, well-kept, well-manicured, inwardly, full of dead man's rotting corpses. Uh, and he says that that's what religion is. That's what the nation of Israel was doing, trying to keep the law of Moses. Outwardly, leafy, full, seemingly religious, inwardly, full of dead man's bones, producing no spiritual fruit. Jesus said, let no fruit on you grow ever again. We know from reading the rest of the New Testament, and especially Romans chapters eight through 10, that God has an ongoing plan for the nation of Israel. So we need to be careful when we say the fig tree is Israel. If that were the case, Jesus would have just eliminated Israel from God's plan, uh, but that's not true. Uh, so we understand that at least here, the fig tree represented the nation in the sense of the leadership that would shortly condemn him to death. Now in the next verse, in verse 20, we'll see the disciples ask about the withering of the fig tree and Jesus will apply it to them. Thus, while we've seen the context of this incident is to discuss and describe Israel's fruitlessness even after her Messiah had been cultivating her, there's an application beyond Israel and her leaders that we can appreciate. And it is this, Jesus expects to find fruit in our lives 
as believers. Now by fruit, we mean, of course, the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians chapter five. It reads like this, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There are some who say that the fruit of the Spirit is love, period, and that the other words are a description of love, different aspects of love. I don't know if it matters that much. I know that what Paul says there isn't a complete description of fruit. Uh, He's really just talking about, and the Bible is talking about, uh, a fruitful life, solid, grounded, growing Christian life that is offered as a living sacrifice to the Lord, looking forward to his coming and to his hearing him say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. And so the idea of fruitfulness it, it, you know, has to do with certain traits, but also certain characteristics and activities. And just, it's, it's, a, it's a holistic term, I guess, for lack of a better word. Looking at your whole life, would you say that your life is bearing fruit? Salvation means we have spiritual life. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We're made alive. Our spirit's alive. God, the Holy Spirit, indwells us. You could say we are, as Christians, rooted and grounded in Jesus. If his life is coursing through us, of course it's going to produce fruit. The tree produces fruit on its own. It doesn't have to get a lot of effort. I was out having trouble with my miniature orange tree. It's losing its leaves. You know, it's, I, I don't really take care of it. I don't even know it's out there half the time. But when I went out there yesterday and was watering it, it wasn't stressing. Yeah, I didn't... It, I didn't need counseling or anything. I mean, it just, it either produces fruit or it's not. Uh, and, and so Jesus, if, if we're alive as Christians, we should be producing fruit. Not only that, Jesus is constantly at work cultivating fruit in our lives. In a few days, Jesus would have a final supper with his disciples, during which he would compare them not to a fig tree, but to a vineyard. John 15, I'm the true vine, my father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. The vine dresser repositions under producing vines. He prunes others to get a greater yield. He removes dead growth. The Lord is telling us in all of these figures that he is constantly at work through the word of God, by the Spirit of God in the issues and circumstances of our lives to produce spiritual fruit in abundance. We know all this. Knowing it, we can sit before the Lord and ask him to inspect us for fruitfulness. It's all too possible to be leafy on the outside but lack fruit, spiritual fruit underneath. Uh, We can leave our first love. You read about this at the church in uh, Ephesus in the book of the Revelation. They had left their first love. Tons of good works, lots of leafy growth, but Jesus said, I've got a problem. You've left your first love and I'm going to remove my presence from your church if you don't get a handle on this. Uh, Some Bible teachers put it this way, you go through the motions, but you lack the emotions. Now, I can't tell if you're a fruitless fig tree You can't tell if I am, really. Time might reveal some things, but only God can discern whether or not I am abiding in him, yielding to him, producing fruit in my life. When we get to our reflection time on the message today, give the Lord freedom to look beneath the leaves and tell you what he finds. Now, what's interesting about coming to church, you always always kind of expect to be rebuked in a bad way, don't you? I mean, isn't that kind of 
what happens? You think, you're going to look for fruit, and there's going to be withered figs. You're a withered fig tree. Now, that could be true, and, and that's a good thing if the Lord says to you, hey, you know, you're, you're not really producing very much fruit. Let's get, I want, I'm, and what, I, what you're going through right now is a cultivation, it's a pruning, let's get into this. But it's just as likely with at least some of us, some of you, that the Lord will show you some fruit that he's been producing in your life. I mean, the Lord also wants to encourage you and say, hey, what you're doing at work or what you're doing at home or in the church, this is fruitfulness that I have brought to bear in your life. And so just spend time with the Lord when we get to that part of our service and let him be the Lord and show you the fruit or the lack of it in your life. Now, in verses 20 through 22, Jesus is going to work with you expecting faith. As we get back to the text, it's good to remember that part of what Jesus was doing was preparing his boys for their mission after he was crucified, raised, and ascended into heaven. This whole section of scripture that began way back earlier in Matthew talks about the dispensation we live in now, the church age, which happens because Israel rejects their Messiah and the Lord is saying, hey, I'm leaving, I'm going to heaven, leaving you guys here, you're gonna carry on the work, not of establishing the kingdom, that's gonna happen later when I return, the work of spreading the gospel. And so the Lord is always thinking about his guys, always trying to get them ready. Jesus' answer to their amazement at the withering of the fig tree is about their future and the need to walk by faith if they had any thought of accomplishing that task. Verse 20, when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? After everything Jesus had done, they marveled at a withered tree. Would this be your number one marvel? If you weren't doing one of those stupid Facebook polls, what do you marvel at that Jesus did? He rose, raised people from the dead. He cast out thousands of demons. He healed people who had been blind from birth, on and on and on. I, I would venture to say no one would say he cursed a withered fig tree. That, that wouldn't be on anybody's list, and yet the disciples marveled. Now, on the other hand, I can see that as a good thing, or at least we can apply it in a good way. In our walk with the Lord, the things he does or doesn't do sometimes for us and others ought to always cause us to marvel. If you're an older Christian, and by that I mean your spiritual age, not your physical age, you should marvel with younger believers when they get all excited about something that you experienced or realized years ago. It's a marvel to them, and it still ought to be for us as well. I, I, you know how it goes. You're, you know, you've been a Christian for a while, and somebody goes, oh, I just, you know, I was reading this in the Word, and look, look at what it says here. It says, Jesus loves me. And then you say, yeah, yeah of course he does. So? He, he loved me 30 years ago. I've got 30 years on you. And I mean, we don't do it that bluntly. Well, sometimes we do. I mean, it's a marvel. And then you should think, wow, how come I don't marvel at the Lord's love like this young believer? And that's why it's nice to be around young believers. They make a lot of mistakes. They, they say crazy things that aren't true. So did you. But they're exciting because it, they challenge you. They, When's the last time I got excited? When's the last time I skipped my Bible I skipped my breakfast to read the Bible. I mean, you know, wow. And uh, so, you know, it's a good thing to marvel that the Lord has anything to do with us at all, quite honestly. 
that he loves us enough to have condescended to come and be among us and die for us and rise from the dead and send his spirit to live inside of us. And so the whole Christian life is a marvel. Verse 21, so Jesus answered and said to them, assuredly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Now the scenery here is significant. They were walking along a road, they encountered a fig tree, they were in the vicinity of the Mount of Olives and the Dead Sea. I'm gonna suggest that the Lord meant to illustrate for them and for us that as we walk with him during his absence, there is work to be done, obstacles will present themselves, and we must therefore walk and work by faith, believing that our mission cannot fail and that those obstacles can and will be removed. I think Jesus' teaching here is like what we read in the book of Zechariah in chapter four, verses six and seven. These are familiar favorite scriptures of ours. So he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts, grace, grace to it. Now let me give you the backstory here to Zechariah 4. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, Zerubbabel led the first group of Jews who returned from the Babylonian captivity at the close of the 70 years. In the second year after their return, Zerubbabel erected an altar and laid the foundation of the temple on the ruins of that which had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Zerubbabel was overwhelmed with obstacles in the path of completing the task. The word that the Lord spoke to him said, your obstacles are like a great mountain in a path. You can't go around it, you can't go under it, you can't go through it, you have to go over it and all. And he said, but all you need to do is have faith and you will find that mountain will disappear. And so it was task specific. The Lord wasn't telling him uh, that every mountain that he looked at could be leveled. It would help you go over the grapevine and not have air conditioning problems. But, uh, you know, that kind of, he said, no, you have obstacles in the path of your mission that seem to be insurmountable, but by the Spirit of God, we will succeed. To Zerubbabel, it seemed as though the Himalayas were standing in his way, needing not just to be climbed and crossed, but removed. Impossible, but not impossible with God. Nor, not by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, to complete the task through him as he walked and worked by faith. Now, we usually backpedal on these verses trying to defend them since they, uh, they don't seem to be true. Certainly, whatever things we ask in prayer don't always come to pass. And so we have to have an apologetic for why that's not true. And it's okay to say, well, obviously Jesus means things that are in the will of God. I mean, that's a true statement. But I don't think Jesus is really teaching us about prayer in general with this statement. If you keep it in context, he's saying, guys, there's gonna be obstacles. They're gonna present themselves as insurmountable. But if you'll walk by faith and work with me by faith and pray about it, you're gonna have a straight shot to preaching the gospel. My work cannot fail. What Jesus was going for here is a potent promise regarding the success of their future mission. They were on the road to Jerusalem. The nation of Israel officially was a fruitless fig tree. 
It called for a change of plan in terms of reaching the world with a message of salvation. The message of spreading the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the ends of the earth would fall first to the apostles, then to all their future converts until the church age ends with the resurrection and rapture of the church. Think of it. Eleven guys were tasked with spreading the greatest message of all time, but they had to do it in the shadow of the national rejection of and the violent killing of their leader and the suicide of one of them who had proven to be a traitor. Just as an aside, if you're analyzing Jesus from a a non-biblical point of view, from an outside point of view, and people are saying, hey, you need to follow Jesus, One of your arguments is Jesus couldn't even hang with his own guys. One of them was a traitor or he betrayed him and killed himself. Is that the kind of group you want to associate with? You have to understand this movement didn't have much uh, going for it from a natural point of view. And so if you're these 11 guys, this is like putting the Sierra mountain range on top of the Himalayas, and you're in, in the path of, uh, of all that, and you have to either climb it in sandals with no mountain gear, or you have to level it using only your bare hands as tools. That's the task that these guys were left with. You guys are gonna go into the whole world with the gospel. You 11 guys and a few others that are in the upper room, this is what I want you to do you might as well try and dig through the Himalayas and and level that just using your bare hands. And then once you get through, once that's all leveled, there's gonna be an ocean on the other side that you need to cross and you don't have a boat. And so I don't think I'm exaggerating at all the, the immensity of the task that was set before these guys. But what did Jesus say? He goes, just wait and the Holy Spirit's gonna come and then you're going to accomplish this task. And you know what? We are here today because of that moment when the Holy Spirit came upon those guys and Jesus promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church was realized. And um, I mean, we're, we're the Acts 29, right? Acts 28, the, bi- the book ends, but it goes on and on and on through the centuries by the power of the Holy Spirit It's still an insurmountable task. Sometimes I think the problem we have is that we do have our technology, we do have our televisions and radios and we're able to fly all over the place and do missions work and all of that and we begin to depend on those things. These guys had nothing. I mean, you can say, man, what would Paul have done with Facebook? I'm sure he would have used it and done great things with it, but he did great things without it because it was in the power and by the Spirit of God. And and that's what Jesus is talking about. Any mountain, any ocean, any obstacle of any kind could and would be removed as they simply press forward, sharing Christ, one person, one home, one village at a time. But it only happens by faith, walking by faith, working by faith. It's not by might nor by power, it's by the Spirit of God. Are we trusting in might and power? It happens as God blesses us with resources and tools. We want to use resources and tools. It's silly to not, but we have to walk a fine line where we don't begin to trust in them. The gospel is still you and I sharing the life of Jesus Christ with people around us in our neighborhood, where we work, 
Sometimes even in our church when there are people who are not saved and those kinds of things. Let's be sure we are working, yielded to him, doing those things he has called us to do, but doing them the way he has called us to do them by the Spirit, having begun in the Spirit. That's how we all begin the Christian life. It's the only way. Being born again by the Spirit of God, beginning in the Spirit, we cannot perfect that in the flesh. And it's, it's uh, you know, it's too easy to become leafy. They have a lot of outward activity and lack that which is underneath, that spiritual devotion with the Lord. And so as we spend time with the Lord this morning, that's another thing that we can talk about just getting back, if we need to, uh, to those times. Let's have a word of prayer.